Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining me. I'm your guest host, Deb Hutton. We'll be here until 6 o'clock. Tomorrow afternoon at 2, you're going to have the dulcet tones of our friend Scott Reed. He'll be guest hosting from 2 until 6, so you'll want to tune in for that. But right now, I am joined by two of our smart speakers, Faye Johnstone, who is the co-owner and executive director of consulting firm Wisdom to Action, and Tim Powers, the chairman of Summa Strategies and the managing director of Abacus Data. Welcome to you both. Let's start with the world of politics. There is a Toronto Star story out today um, that I commented on in the last half hour or so about the fact that Ontario MPPs have not had a pay raise since 2008. If my math's right, that is 15 years. Certainly, um, there are those who would say, yeah, well, you know, it's been tough for everybody. And then there's people like me who say, you're going to end up getting what you pay for. And nobody should be without a raise, in my humble view, for 15 full years. Faye Johnstone, let's start with you. What do you think about this? Oh, I'm absolutely on the same page as you. You know, we talk a lot about how um, you know we want to draw talent to politics and you got to pay people what they're worth. Uh, my co-owner is an MLA in Nova Scotia uh, where their wages are even lower than the ones that we've got going on here in Ontario. And if you want to bring the right folks to politics, you got to have some financial incentive because they give a lot to the work and they deserve to be compensated as such. So I'm going to stick with you for a moment, Faye. Um, obviously, we share the position, but how do you get to a fair wage for our MPPs when I don't think there's any appetite for 15 years worth of inflationary catch-up. I think we need to almost start, not from scratch, but I think we need to almost ignore the what happened in 2008 and just think about what is fair compensation in 2024 uh, and i think you know we're, we can't play a catch-up game there have been a long many a year of inflation and we do need to make sure that it's it's a, a reasonable salary salary but i think uh it's just it, sticking with where it is is easier uh, but it doesn't do it doesn't compensate folks in the way they deserve yeah, Tim Powers, I mean, I I am actually critical of the Premier on this, who has said just recently that he will not be looking at a wage increase in recognition of the affordability issues we have. I, I, I do disagree with him. And part of my issue is that I think it's been weak politicians in the past who have got us to where we are because they don't want to say, yes, I'm going to stick with the system that tells politicians what they should be paid. Look, uh, uh, come on. They should all have a vow of poverty. Remember, you and I got into politics to make money. And <laughs> I mean, this is all so stupid, right? If it were any other industry, nobody will be tolerating this. Uh, but look, this is how we do politics. And it's, it, it is costing us and not, not in savings in terms of lower salaries. They won't fix up Sussex Drive where Faye and I are in Ottawa because you can't do that because that's a political albatross. But, you know, let's host world leaders at the West instead of a residence or something here. I mean, how do you do this? I think you can borrow from other practices in, in other sectors where you bring in a, you know, a respectable body like Deloitte or EY or one of the big four and ask them to do a comparative compensation study, provide some recommendations, and on a go-forward basis, um, you know, maybe you have a third party, as we're trying to do with the federal debates, although that didn't work well last time, uh, a 
adjudicate um, you know, how compensation should be dealt with, because if you leave it with the politicians, it will always be political. And you're so right. If you don't pay people you know, a, compar- a comparable wage, a competitive wage, you reap what you sow. And as Benzies wrote in that story, you're either going to get uber-rich people who can afford to do it, or people who are prepared to accept that pay because maybe it's the best pay they can get. Yeah, and, and you want, I mean, my experience, Tim, and I, I suspect yours is similar, is that most people, not all, but most people go into politics not for the money. But they may, well, I mean, and staffers included, you and me. Yes. <laughs> but, you know, at a certain point, they have to say, I, I deserve a little bit more. So you may not be able to keep them because of the money. Well, look, you can speak to this yourself. If you, your husband uh, lived, worked in that, in that wage, if you weren't working at the same time, you wouldn't have been able to raise your two girls. How could you do that on $116,000 or your husband's salary would have been a little bit more because he was opposition leaders? How can any family, particularly those that are in Toronto and the like, um, afford to raise a family if they only have the option of one person working and that person's in politics and they're away? a lot and the other person has to to work at home like it's it's you know i'm not saying it's a not a living wage but it's not conducive for people who have families or people who uh, are trying to juggle different interests uh, and want to put those aside for a little while to go into politics so the toronto district school board the biggest school board in this country was to have voted last night on banning cell phones in the classroom in the schools they did a bit of a mealy-mouthed in my view approach to it which was to say that we are going to develop a policy that would quote limit student cell phone use i am for an outright ban particularly at the elementary school the glitch, Faye Johnstone, is that when my girls' school actually brought this forward as a parent council, we had parents who opposed it, who said, uh, sorry, I bought my kid a cell phone so I can reach them. I intend to reach them. Your thoughts, Faye? You know, I I think it's part of me feels like it's a losing battle to even try to ban cell phones at this point. I think that uh, you know, technology is an everyday part of our life in a way that, uh, in, in, a, in a bigger way than ever before in human history. But at the same time, I do worry, especially for the youngins. Uh, you know, we we saw those stories during COVID about kids losing, you know, social skills and losing uh, even like the ability to do things with their hands. I think because they were just sitting in front of screens more than they had before. So especially for the younger kids, I would be a fan of limits and I think a ban if if we need to get to that point, but we shouldn't have kids on their phones all day long every day. That said, I would always be the kid who would violate the rules of that ban, regardless of what my teacher or school were said. Tim Powers, am I just being an old fuddy duddy on this? Oh, uh, well, you and I are going to agree again on this one. So, no, neither of us are fuddy duddies. Let's get that out there. Yeah, no, look, you have young children. I have young children. I don't want my kid on a phone in uh, in class. Uh, I it, there, as Faye alluded to, there are enough distractions out there. We are wiring up as best we can. Most classrooms let them use technology that way. But uh, school is about building powers of concentration, powers of thinking. How does it, it's not about creating another. Space for distraction, and that's what the cell phones uh, unregulated in classrooms can poss- can do. 
An interesting project. We just have a couple minutes here before the break. Interesting project where Refugee Housing Canada is having a home sharing platform that connects refugees in need of a safe uh, housing and people who have extra spots in their their homes. Maybe it's an extra bedroom. Maybe it's the basement. Maybe it's an unused apartment. It's operating like a not-for-profit Airbnb. Your thoughts on this, Faye? I mean, on the surface, I think it's a great idea. I just don't know how many people will do this. And is it safe? And that's exactly my concern. Uh, I I worry. So I, I want to applaud the nonprofit. I think this is this is innovation. They might, must have seen Airbnb and said, "Hey, we can create a cool, different model for this that helps in our particular case." Uh, but I think it's an interim solution. Uh, I think we we need to address the housing crisis, and uh, mm-hmm. we need to go as governments further in supporting refugees, not to just come here, but to succeed once they are here. And so I like the program. I just don't think it's the solution. It's not a silver bullet, and we need more silver bullets on this issue right now. Tim Powers? It's an app, not hammers and nails and boards and uh, whatever else you build houses with these days. It's a good idea. It's creative, and it may help a few people, but ultimately, you need the infrastructure, and technology can do a lot but I don't know even with a 3D printer if you can build a house quickly. So work to be done here. But a good start, good idea. Yeah, the idea is, the idea is good, but it, it doesn't replace new infrastructure for all people who are needing homes. We're going to take a break for traffic, and when we come back, I will continue to be joined by our smart speakers, Faye Johnstone, co-owner and executive director of consulting firm Wisdom to Action, Tim Powers, chairman of Sumas Strategies, and the managing director of Abacus Data. We're going to discuss whether we have the right system in our emergency departments here in the province of Ontario, quite frankly, across the country. All that and more when we come back. You're listening to Deb Hutton, guest host for The Rush on News Talk 1010. Welcome back. You're listening to Deb Hutton, joined by Faye Johnstone, co-owner and executive director of consulting firm Wisdom to Action, and Tim Powers, the chairman of Summa Strategies and managing director of Abacus Data. Hospitals are, I will say again, because I feel as though this does happen every flu season in winter, they're asking non-urgent patients to seek alternatives to emergency departments. I, you know, my first reaction to this story, again, aside from the fact that I feel like we see it every year, is like, how stupid are people? Like, why are they continuing to do this? Is this an issue of selfishness? Is this like, what is behind this? And and if there is one public policy answer behind it, I do think that we, we need to up the hours and the days and the availability of our non-urgent care clinics, because I have taken my kids tried to do the right thing, stay away from emergency departments, but when there's an injury and you feel like somebody should look at it, to a a walk-in clinic at, you know, two o'clock in the afternoon on a Saturday, and they say, we are not taking any more patients for the rest of the day. Faye Johnstone, is there an answer to this other than just saying to people, please don't come if you just have a headache? Uh, we need to expand our ER capacity, and indeed, we need better walk-in clinics. You know, I had an infected finger a few months ago uh, that kept getting worse and worse every day. I called my family doctor. They couldn't see me for a few weeks, and I didn't want to go to emergency room, so I tried a walk-in clinic. The first one already wasn't accepting patients. The second one, uh, it was going to be an eight-hour wait, and I couldn't just sit there for eight hours. 
And so I went with a virtual option. But if we know this is going to happen time and again, uh, we need, I, I would say, our governments to help make sure that ER capacity grows. And we need to make sure that folks actually know about walk-in clinics, where they are, how long their wait times are, and what kinds of services you can access there. Because people in crisis are going to keep going to those ERs because they don't know where else to go. Tim Powers, you've done public policy. What's your take on this? Well, come on. Isn't this why Al Gore invented the Internet? So we could all become WebMD. <laughs> we could just Google it and fix it ourselves. Sadly, too many people do. I, I think it's a, a combination of things. I think Faye's n- nailed a, f- a couple of them. I think another aspect of this is if we are going, you know, we are, look, we are, private service already exists. So why don't we contract uh, publicly with public funds, some of the private service provision to do some of the uh, so-called tertiary care and, and and do that. I mean, you know, uh, this is where private and public can come together well. And to your point, exercise common sense. I mean, look, uh, I, I, I hear every day, I think they give updates here in this part of Ontario on the emergency room wait lines. I mean, if there's a 20-hour wait and you have a headache, um, yes, maybe that is something serious, but maybe you can call Telehealth Ontario, explain your symptoms, uh, and then or go talk to a pharmacist. Pharmacists will often help you, but be, we have a responsibility to be creative, too. Yeah, I, I mean, that's that's my take, right? It's it's there's, there's no one bullet for this whole thing. I mean, one of the other issues, which was an issue way back when I was in government, which is quite some time ago, where we have too many people who don't have access to long-term care. And so then they are in yeah. hospitals. We used to use that terrible term, bed blockers. And then people who are in ER and need to be admitted are clogging up our ERs and making, you know, availability of of space to actually see someone who comes in. So there's a holistic approach to it, but I do think it has to start, as you say, Tim, with some common sense on the part of people who are using uh, our healthcare system. So there's a really sad story out of Regina. A man fell off a Regina bus. He ended up dying because he laid on the side of the road And dozens and dozens of cars drove past him, and not a single one stopped, not a single one called 911. What is this about, Faye Johnston? Do you think that we are just—I don't believe we're, as a society, so selfish or so disinterested in our fellow humans. There there has to be something that no one stopped. You know, I I struggle with the—like, bystander intervention, I think, is is something— uh, that we we hope and pray works better than it actually does. Um, you know, we've in in both you know in sexual violence we talk about bystander intervention and anti-bullying we talk about it, uh, and often you know folks will not intervene either they're too busy going about their days or they imagine someone else has dealt with it. Uh, my you know very not comprehensive or systemic suggestion is give everyone some lifeguard training because if anything can get you Uh to get into action lifeguard training and some first aid training really does get you there tim powers 
Uh, and the other sector, too, uh, where bystander intervention could help a lot more is in the sports sector. Uh, you know all the stories of abuses, and we see them all. And uh, as a coach in the sports sector, you get trained on that. But I, I don't know. Maybe I'm, I'm dumb. I'm certainly not a hero. I think a lot of people would agree I'm dumb. I got thrown in this circumstance in, in May. A friend and I were out for a walk. man was riding a bike in front of us. He collapsed, ended up having to do CPR on the man. Thankfully, we were very lucky that an off-duty paramedic came along at the same time. We we didn't think about it. Maybe he could have sued us after the fact because we cracked his ribs. But you just, I mean, that's the way we're brought up. If you know, if you have some of the skills, you apply them uh, at the most urgent of circumstances for the people who need it. Yeah, I will say, you know, as a female uh, who lives in in Toronto proper, uh, I would be reluctant if I didn't see someone collapse necessarily, or if certainly I didn't know them, I would be reluctant to physically intervene. But I'll tell you, mm-hmm. I would call 911. And that was the part that yeah. really, you know, perplexed me about this situation. It, we all have phones. I mean, 99% of us do. It doesn't take much to call 911 and say, this is what I saw. I don't know what the issue is, but someone should come. So you said this is the way we were brought up, Tim Powers, and as most of us can tell by that ever so slight Newfoundland accent that you have, I thought I'd take the last couple of minutes, Faye, you can hopefully uh, bear with me here. I had a great, I thought, great uh, guest on the show yesterday. His name is Terry Ryan. He's 47 years old. He uh, was a professional hockey player 20 years ago, 2002 or 2003, I think was his last season, and he got called up to play for the Newfoundland Growlers. You were in Newfoundland when this was all unfolding. Well, listen, and it being Newfoundland, you know enough Newfoundlanders to know we are all related like a tenth of a degree of separation. Terry's father used to be my substitute French teacher. And you can imagine <laughs> trying to teach French to a bunch of Newfoundlanders, but he discovered we all liked hockey, and Terry's father used to play in the old WHA. So he brought in a stick he had from Bobby Hull and would talk about the stick for an hour. And, of course, we in French, and that helped us with French. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Uh, Terry Jr. is a wonderful communicator. His story, well chronicled by Bruce Arthur and others, how he was the number one draft choice, and then life fell, you know, the backside of life fell away for him. And then all of a sudden, as you would expect from Terry and others, he's out celebrating his birthday Saturday night, gets a call. He's had five beer uh, by his own recollection. So if a Newfoundlander's telling you he had five, he probably had ten. Nonetheless, gets the call, thinks it's a fake. Gale goes out and plays. I tell you, at home, it is... Um, it, 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 they're ready to make a Hallmark movie out of it, uh, and they should maybe. He's, Terry, of course, is already in Shorzy. It's a wonderful story. He's well liked in our home province, and the fact that a 47 year old could still go out and play a program and get in a fight, which in Newfoundland's a big thing, and not do too badly in it. Uh, I mean, they'll be—they've uh, been fetting him in the street for days, Deb. I'm telling you guys, you know everybody. I got his actual cell number from you got it from too yeah you know exactly who i got it from all right thanks so much (laughs) faye johnstone co-owner and executive director of consulting from wisdom to action tim powers chairman of suma strategies managing director of abacus and our token newfoundlander on the smart speakers panel thanks so much guys